0: Well, it is truly an honor to be here um, talking about uh, children and youth experiencing foster care, particularly what God has to say about that. Uh, Before we jump into the sermon, I just kind of want to let you know, what is Foster the City? Foster the City is a coalition of 218 churches who have locked arms to find homes for children and youth in the foster care system and to support every fostering family with a team of four support friends, four households that really intentionally come around and support that fostering family through the responsibility of caring for these children and youth that they welcome into their home. And LA County, as some of you know, is the epicenter of the child welfare crisis in America. There are more children and youth in our county's foster care system than any entire state in the U.S., combined. When sociologists look back at this moment, they are in the annals of history going to scratch their head and ask questions of how did it get so bad? How were so many families driven to a place where it was no longer safe or appropriate for their own children to remain in that household? And many of these children right now are entering the system at rapid numbers. There's something called the COVID bubble. And unfortunately, over the past few years, uh, abuse increased, but mandated reporters decreased. Kids weren't in school. They weren't at basketball practice. They weren't at kids' church. These are all the places where abuse is spotted and reported. And we know that during summer and holiday seasons, abuse actually increases let alone the economic pressure and complexity of what the last two years have been for all of us, particularly for our vulnerable families in our community. And so what's happened is over the last two years, uh, more and more kids have entered into foster care as we've gotten back to life. But we have this kind of house slipper mentality that's also seeped into our culture, don't we? So much is accessible from home. If anything, we already lived a relatively comfortable life, and now it's even more comfortable. We're now more isolated as families, we're, we're more, now more relaxed than ever, and so you have this shift where there's more kids entering into care, but there's fewer and fewer families who are putting their hand up to say, yes, I will care for that child. And so children are literally sleeping on the floor of social worker offices. Social workers are needing to spend the night and rent hotels because they can't find a place for their kids to go. And so we are in a season where there is just a desperate need. But the good news is that I believe right here in this room, you have a surrogate family. And our vision is a church for every child because when a child's removed from their home, they don't just lose their mom or their dad. They lose their grandma and their auntie and their uncle and the neighborhood kid they used to play with and their favorite basketball coach and their favorite teacher. Their whole world is upended. And so what children and youth experiencing foster care need is a surrogate family, a place to heal, a place to be safe, a place to be known. And that is exactly what you are. You are a family. You are a safe place for children to be and know that they're loved and to speak life over them to sit here with you and sing these songs, songs of hope, songs of a future, songs of God's presence. That type of activity can literally rewrite the destiny of a child. And so our hope among the coalition is that all of us are locking arms to say, okay, we believe God's called us to engage. We understand that there is a need right now in our own backyard that we can meet as the body of Christ. And so we are going to step towards that need in the ways that we can in this season of life. And so I really would like to invite you guys after we eat to head upstairs. We're gonna have an interest meeting. We're gonna go over five ways that you can get connected. Only one of them is becoming a foster parent because that's the one that you're like, all right, if I go up there, am I leaving with a child? You know, like, (laughs) are there kids up there right now? I heard some extra noise. Was that children? Because I am not going to that meeting. So here's the thing, Foster the City, we're the safest organization you could come in contact with because we're not a placing agency and we don't actually certify foster families. So I don't bite, okay? And Foster the City doesn't bite. We, we can't place you with a child. And so we're the perfect group to process what God stirs up in you to engage these children and youth. And so you're, um, the other important thing is this is a local church ministry. I don't lead foster the city here at the Commons um, that uh, role belongs to Paul and Sarah and to David so can we give it up for your guys as advocates they're going to be helping to lead this ministry and if you have questions when there is a fostering family to wrap with support fl- friends they're going to be handling all of that and so this is your ministry it's kind of like we're celebrating a birthday that's really cheesy but it almost kind of works. Like, this is the birthday of the Foster the City Ministry, and you guys have already been engaged in foster care, so well done. But we're hoping to come alongside you and just help uh, the, the passion that God's already placed in your heart. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, I, I really want to talk to you guys today out of the title of an out-of-your-mind type of love. An out-of-your-mind type of love. And I believe um, we are going to mine the depths of the gospel this morning, but we're also going to see three foundational truths that I think are just absolute must-have. Whether you become a mentor to a child and youth in foster care or support friends, or one day God calls you into the beautiful privilege of having children and youth in your home who are in need of family, wherever you are on that spectrum, I believe these three truths are absolutely foundational, not only for followers of Jesus, but especially those of us who are going to move towards the foster care system. You know, it's often said that love makes you crazy. You guys ever heard that before? And I imagine some of you have even done some crazy things because you've been in love before. Um, And not just for a spouse or a significant other, but even maybe for children, or for a good friend. When you care about somebody somebody deeply, love makes you do crazy things. Even the dark and haunted 19th century poet Edgar Allan Poe once admitted, I was never insane except upon occasions when my heart was touched. And this is not just anecdotally true, it's psychologically true. Um, Research shows that love actually makes you take risks. In a scholarly article published in the Journal of Risk Research, they found, wait for it, that men were likely to take risks, even some life-threatening, in order to get together with a female. <laughs> Any shockers out there? I, sometimes the things that researchers study just makes you want to scratch your head. And this is because when you're in love, whether it's you know for a child that you care about and you want to protect, or a friend that you're passionate about, or someone that you love, adrenaline is released and it actually causes you to act out of your character. It causes you, when you're in love, to take risks and move towards people.
1: I remember when I was
0: 19 years old and I was in a very, very unhealthy relationship, as you will soon see. And my girlfriend and I used to drive by this beautiful three-story house that was being constructed. It overlooked this lake, it was just beautiful. And we would always joke, "Oh, when we get married, we were not ready to get married. We're gonna move into this house. And so it was kind of this little joke and this very, once again, unhealthy relationship. And so there was a a moment during the build where the doors and the windows were on, but the house wasn't fully closed. And so I got into the house because it was open. I unscrewed the door handle. I took it to a locksmith. I told him I lost the key, can you help me out here? He happily took my money and made me a set of keys. I went back to the house, some of you are judging me, I see you, I, I, I told you it was unhealthy. I screwed the door knob back in the house and then a few weeks later it was Valentine's Day, so me and my girlfriend were hanging out late at night, we drove past the house, and I said, "Let you know, I'm going to take you home now, and I took her to the house, walked up to the front door, opened the front door with my keys, took her to the third floor where there was a table and a candlelit dinner that I had made and we had a valentine's day dinner come on that's now to be clear this story is off limits for the Q&A i just want to make that clear right up front okay you can ask me about a lot of things but this is you know this is in that bucket of please don't ask me about this and this was obviously a rather unhealthy Example, and I did end up, you know, not entering the house after residents had moved in. Don't worry, I'm not a psycho. I only use it regularly when no one lived there, okay? (laughs) But the Bible is actually full of these kind of like out-of-your-mind type of moments. Think about Jacob. Jacob worked 14 years just to win the hand of Rachel in marriage, 14 years of manual labor. And in Genesis. uh, 2920, it says, But Jacob's love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. That's an out-of-your-mind type of love. Or two of my favorite, very unknown characters in the Bible, Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 who defined the edict of Pharaoh to execute and kill Hebrew male children as they were delivered. And risk their own life to lie to the empire. To save and preserve God's people. That is an out-of-your-mind type of love. And this morning, I want to talk about what makes us love like that. What makes us risk? What makes us act out of character? What makes us do things that when other people look on, they think that you are crazy? Over the past five years of being a foster parent, I've had the privilege of having nine different children in my house that my wife and I have had to care for for different lengths of time. And um, over that time, I've had some pretty strange looks about my family and some pretty strange comments. But there's one conversation that always seems to rise to the surface and it goes something like this. Is that really your kid? Uh, Yes, yeah, she's my foster daughter. Oh, so you're going to adopt her? Well, no, thankfully, Her mom's doing really well. And it seems like she's going to be able to go home to her family where she belongs. But when she leaves, isn't that going to hurt? Doesn't that just rip your heart out? Yes. We will miss her greatly. Sorry. And we will carry her in our hearts for the rest of our life. And though it brings us so much pain, We are actually praying, hoping, and working for the day that this little girl can go home. Wow, I could never be a foster parent. I would get way too attached to the kids. Well, actually, getting too attached is the only way that these kids are going to heal. Actually, getting too attached is the only way that this family is going to be made whole. Actually, me relentlessly... Loving my foster daughter, no matter what her behaviors, or what the behaviors of her first family, is the best way that I can show her how God truly loves her. And so this morning, I want to explore with you an out-of-your-mind type of love, a love so costly that when people look at what you're willing to give up, they actually think you're crazy. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? This is out of Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through to 21. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope also it's plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, thank You for this opportunity to sit as a family and listen to Your Word and hear Your heart. God, I pray that You would meet with us. I pray, God, that You would remind us of the beauty of the Gospel story. God, I pray that no one would leave here this morning without having an encounter, a fresh Encounter with the love that God has for them. God, your love changes us. Your love makes us do crazy things. And I pray this morning that we would continue to be transformed into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You may take a seat. So this morning I'm going to call your attention to three aspects of this out-of-your-mind type of love that I think Paul wants us to understand from this passage. And like I said before, I think these are three aspects that are vital for us who are going to engage the marginalized in general, but specifically children and youth experiencing foster care. So the first one is that Christ's sacrificial love uh, creates in us an out-of-your-mind type of love for God. Christ's sacrificial love creates in us an out-of-your-mind type of love for God. The book of 2 Corinthians um, is really a book where Paul's primary task is to defend his ministry.
1: See, the believers
0: in Corinth, they've been convinced by polished and wealthy itinerant preachers that the suffering and poverty that Paul experienced discredited his apostolic authority. They taught that blessing, prosperity, and wealth were signs of God's favor. And that suffering, poverty, and hardship were actually signs of God's judgment. And even though Paul personally led these believers to Christ, even though Paul remained for them for months and labored with his own hands at his own trade so he didn't draw any financial resources from the church, these super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them, have convinced the church that Paul's suffering discredits him from God working through his life, that he is no longer a valid spokesman for the Lord. In other words, as Paul says, he is out of his mind. (laughs) What he is willing to do for the Lord is crazy, and therefore he must not be from God. Oddly enough, this ancient way of thinking isn't really that ancient, is it? In Charles Taylor's highly acclaimed book, A, Sexual, uh, a, Sexual, a, se- a Secular Age, that's going to be his sequel, A Sexual Age, which <laughs> is actually a fitting description. But uh, no, his book's called A Secular Age. He says it this way, Western society's highest goal is always to prevent suffering. No matter what, in our context, in our worldview right now, we want to prevent suffering. We want to minimize it or avoid it or suppress it. Dr. Kim Teller, Tim Keller, man, elaborating on Taylor's work, I'm going to say something like wildly inappropriate. I'm just feeling like this, the words are not flowing right now. And so that will also be off limits in the Q&A if that happens. He says this, in the secular view, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you the most happy. That's the meaning of life in our moment in history. And just think for a moment who our society holds up as worthy of imitation. Who are you and I encouraged to follow and be like every day? Is it the poor or the rich? Is it the weak or the powerful? Is it the doubting or the certain? Is it the leader or the servant? Is it the influencers or the followers? See, the Corinthian church had written Paul off as old news. They had come to see him as a suffering servant who was unworthy of imitation. Yet underneath Paul's poverty and suffering was a deep and satisfying communion with God. What seemed like weakness was actually power. What seemed like death was actually life. A few verses later, Paul says it this way. We are genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, yet we are not killed. Sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. Yet making many rich, we are regarded as poor. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, from a worldly point of view, Paul was living a failed life. He was living a life of discomfort and poverty. But from a kingdom perspective, Paul had everything that he needed in Christ. And it was his joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. But what motivated Paul to persevere through such hardship? To lean in and carry out this out of his mind type of love? Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised for them. See, he does not look to build a comfortable life padded by money and reputation, avoiding all forms of suffering, Rather, Paul is convinced, because love compelled Christ to die in his place, that he can no longer live for his own agenda or his own desires, and he now lives entirely for God. There is a brilliant turn of phrase in the Greek that doesn't come through in English worth commenting on. The word translated out of your mind in the Greek is not the Greek word for madness or insanity, as we would think as it reads in English. It's actually the verb to describe someone caught up in amazement or mesmerized by an angelic vision. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is in a trance and he sees the sheet that falls three times, Peter, arise, kill, and eat, as a message that the Gentiles were now included in God's salvation plan. That is the same word here, the trance that Peter was in. Paul is essentially saying, My opponents think I'm out of my mind when in fact I have been so amazed and entranced by Christ's love that it is my joy to suffer on His behalf. See, Christ was so brutally endured the cross for Paul that Paul so willingly now endures persecution for Christ. In other words, love for Christ drove Paul to do crazy things. I remember hearing the story a couple years ago of this woman who had won this three-week trip, this luxury trip all across the world. And so the organization was putting it on to promote all these places and all of these things, but she won this trip. And a week leading up to the trip, she called the organization and she canceled. She told them that she wasn't going to be able to make this trip. And obviously this organization was going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so they pried and tried to get at why she canceled this trip of a lifetime. And after pestering her, she finally said, my friend is headed in for a risky procedure, and I want to be there when she wakes up. And the director of the program was like, she surely has other family, surely has other friends. To which she responded, you have no idea what this woman had done for me. Three years ago, I was on drugs. I couldn't stop. It got worse and worse and worse. My family rejected me. I was living on the street. She was the only one who supported me. She took me in. She helped me get the treatment I needed. She cleaned me up when I had vomited all over myself. She changed my clothes. She helped me go to court and win my court case. She gave me a job. She changed my life around. The least I could do for her is be present with her when she wakes up from this surgery. It is a fraction of what she has offered to me. And that trip of a lifetime was a small price to pay because this woman had saved her life. Church, every follower of Jesus is this woman. That you and I, we were dead in our sins. Our hearts were cold. They were isolated from God. And and Christ not only warmed our hearts through the gospel, but He drew us close and He saved us. He forgave us of our sin. And not only that, but as our text says, He's actively and continually restoring and making all things new in your life. He is the one who has reached out and saved us in our type of need. Have you sat in and meditated on and spent time thinking about the out-of-your-mind type of love that Christ has offered you through Jesus? He has changed everything for us. Does our hearts soar When we sing the words of that old hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. See, Christ's sacrificial love creates in us an out-of-our-mind type of love for God. But it not only does that, secondly, the secret to sustaining an out-of-your-mind type of love is participating in Christ's death which leads to new life. The secret to sustaining that type of love is participating in Christ's death, which leads to new life. In verse 15, Paul tells us that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died and was raised again. Notice Paul's flow of thought here. Live, died, raised. In this verse, Paul is getting at one of his primary theological teachings, and that is the only way to access the resurrection power of God is through death. Death is the means by which God fills us with transforming life and animates us to his love and to his power. Jesus himself said it this way in John 12, verse 24. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Those who follow the world's pattern of self-promotion and self-preservation will ultimately be damned. But those who seek life by following Christ on his way to the cross will ultimately be made new. And this idea, this concept is often called the cruciform life. And I think it's most directly displayed in baptism. In baptism, when we enter the sacred waters of baptism, we are buried with Christ. Our old man, our old desires, our old longings are dead with Christ. And as we come up out of the water of baptism, it signifies resurrection life we not only have been purified by the waters of baptism but we are made new in God the old has gone the new has come but what exactly is made new because I don't know about you but I found that many of my insecurities my fears my shortcomings and my besetting sins still remain I still get frustrated at my kids I still choose to do the things that I want to do over the things that my spouse wants to do. I still like to sleep in instead of waking up early to read my Bible. I don't know if that's ever going to change. But when your covers are so warm and it's just finely cold outside and you know you should get out of bed, but the covers are just calling your name, man, that is the cruciform life to get into your cold apartment and pick up your Bible sometimes. And so in many ways, we feel and seem like the same person. But on the most fundamental level, God has made you new. And what has happened to the Christian is nothing short of resurrection. When you are dead to your sins and God makes you alive, you are raised and you are given everything that you need to commune with God. God takes the dead, hollow darkness of the human soul and He inflicts uses it with resurrection life so that you can now know and be known by God. I want to give you a few examples of how communion with God sustains you through the cruciform life. One of the main ideas that communicates this is the truth that as we die to ourself, as we say no to our flesh and the desires that we want to live out, the Spirit creates in us a greater desire for righteousness. Have you guys found that to be true? As we say no to our flesh and our desire for sin, God begins to grow our desire to to do good things. It's kind of like digging a well. As you dig a well, you remove dirt and muck and grime out of the well. And as you dig, fresh water begins to flow. And as we, by the Spirit, put to death, the things of this world, the habits that we've formed, God's resurrection power begins to flow and enable us to serve him. I think this is most clearly exemplified in fasting. I think about the temptation of Christ, the fact that he fasted for 40 days to get ready for this epic showdown with him and Satan. And I always thought that Jesus fasted to show off. I always thought that he was fasting, that you know, that idea that like I got more strength in my pinky than you do in your entire body. I thought that was the situation going on until I read and I studied further and I understood the Christian life a little bit more. And then I realized, oh no, he's not fasting because he wants to be weak, he's fasting because he wants to be strong. He's fasting because to say no and to die to the desires of the flesh is to be filled with resurrection power and the ability to say yes to God. When you welcome a child who's experienced foster care into your home, you are welcoming their pain, their loss, their dysfunction, their trauma, their anger, their sleeplessness, it all comes with them into your home. And I truly believe the only way to sustain a healthy love for someone who is continually bringing you pain, loss, dysfunction, Anger in trauma is by dying to yourself so that you can access the resurrection life that God has. Man, I have felt this more than ever when it comes to sleep. I love sleep. I'm like a seven to nine hours kind of guy. I have some friends that, yes, amen. I have some friends that function off of like five to six hours of sleep most nights. And if you're out there, Lord bless you, you have a gift, do not waste it. That is just unbelievable. But over the last five years, every time you take a new placement, it just the whole mechanics of your household change. And for some reason, the county always calls us about babies. And the thing about babies is they don't sleep, especially the babies that we've been placed with. And so I have been in a stupor for five years. I have just been like walking around in a zombie-like state for five years. And there have been moments where I've been angry. This happened last night. Last night, my daughter woke me up, and she really suffers from fear because of her history and the things that were done to her when she was experiencing foster care. And so regularly, she will get spooked by the smallest little wind blowing through a tree or a car driving by, and I am up for two to three hours with her in the middle of the night. And I am so tempted to be angry at her. I am so tempted to just grab her by the shoulders and shake this little five-year-old girl and yell at her, let me get some sleep. You're turning me into a monster. Do you not know that it's for your benefit that I rest? And in those moments, there are so many times where I have done it poorly at three in the morning, but the moments that I die to my need for sleep and I'm present with my daughter, I can just sense the peace of God come into her life. I can just sense her resting and trusting that she's safe when I'm there with her in her room. And as I die to my need for sleep, I see that life begins to form in my daughter And we're connected and she feels safe and she's beginning to heal and she's beginning to realize that she is safe in our household. See, foster care is God's invitation to the cruciform life. That's what it is. I mean, when you invest in these kids and you pour out for them and you love them, it often is for a short period of time. In conventional parenting, you work really hard to train and love and care for your kids because one day their behaviors will increase and they'll bring you joy and you'll get to see them flourish in life and maybe you'll hit the jackpot and you'll get some grandkids when you're older. But when you pour yourself out for children, and youth, and foster care, you may never, and most of the time, never see the fruit of that labor. You are laying your life down so this child can be made whole. One of my foster daughters reunified with her mom in May of this year. And that little girl really stole my heart. We got to be her parents for 14 months. For 14 months, I got to be the one to come in her room when she was scared at night. She was one, and then when she left, she was almost three. For 14 months, I got to be the one to feed her and to take her to our occupational therapy appointments, to pray over her at night, to bring her to church and check her into kids' ministry. For 14 months, I got to be her guy. I got to be the father who was caring for her and loving for her. And when we were placed with her, the social workers told us, this is going to be an adoption placement. Her mom is not in the picture. We haven't heard from her in months. We don't know what's going to happen, but most likely you'll end up adopting her. And every night, my wife and I, we would pray for her mom. We would pray that God would get a hold of her. We would pray that God would transform her life. And about six weeks into being placed with this little girl, her mom emerged. And she checked herself in to a center to rehabilitate from her addiction. And she began kicking some butt. I mean, like just absolutely doing everything that she needed to do to find sobriety and to be present for her little girl. And last May we got to meet up in a Wendy's parking lot and I handed over my 14 year old foster daughter to a healthy sober thriving biological mom. And throughout that process she got invited by a friend from her rehab program to church and she gave her life to Jesus. And last week at our church's Trunk-or-Treat, we invited her and her mom to come trick-or-treat with us. And she told us that she's going back to school to get her master's degree. That she's just a secured rent at a two-bedroom apartment so that my foster daughter can have her own bedroom. And I have seen God radically change her life. And what's crazy about being a foster parent is you actually play a role in the outcome of these situations. Studies show that if a foster parent is adverse to reunification, there is a significantly less likely chance that the kid will reunify. But if the foster parent is championing the mom, praying for the mom, connecting child and mom, they have a significantly greater chance than finding wholeness and being restored. In church, this is what God has called us to do. He's called us to die to self and lay down our life so that other people can find new life and thrive in God's kingdom. And the last thing that I want to say before we close, this third idea is that Christ sends us out as ambassadors to offer his out-of-your-mind kind of love to the world. So first of all, Christ's love creates in us an out-of-your-mind type of love for God. Then we sustain that love by participating with Christ in his death and resurrection life. And then God sends us out into the world as ambassadors to offer this out-of-your-mind type of love to the world. Those of us who've been reconciled with God, we now get to implore others, be reconciled to Christ. As one famous preacher said, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. That we have been transformed and we've been restored. And then we are ambassadors of the transforming power of God. And then we tell other people, have you heard about this Jesus thing? It's amazing. This is what my life used to be like. This is what my life's now. I used to carry all this guilt and shame for the things that I've done. But now God has fully and completely forgiven me. I used to not know what was going to happen when I died. But now I know and I'm confident that I'm going to spend eternity with my Savior. We get to make God's appeal on His behalf as His ambassadors. And we talk about this love that's so radical it not only cleanses us from sin, but it is transforming us and it makes us the righteousness of God. That that blows my mind. (laughs) The great exchange that Christ became sin and I now become the righteousness of God. That means that everywhere you go, everywhere that you walk, talk, eat, pray, sing, love, you are a form of the righteousness of God. That you get to enact justice and goodness and mercy and peace and joy everywhere that you go in this world. See, ambassadors, they carry the culture and the customs of their home country. And so you and I get to carry the customs and the culture of heaven that people are treated the way God would treat them. People are cared for the way Christ would care for them. We get to advocate for the oppressed. We get to set the captives free. We get to enact justice. I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, the Corinthians found Paul's work so hard to fathom precisely because Paul was behaving like someone who lived in another world. He was so otherworldly that they could not understand how he was able to endure so much suffering for the sake of the gospel. A few stories from my time being a foster parent and then we'll close. I still remember one of The most beautiful but hard moments of fostering was we were placed with a different girl than the one I just talked about, a little three-year-old girl, and she was removed because her mom, her grandma, and her great-grandma got in a physical altercation that was so bad, all three of them ended up in the hospital, and this little girl watched it happen. I mean, talk about generational cycles of sin and abuse. And so we were replaced with this little girl, and at the time they were living in their car, and visits were spotty, and then COVID happened. And she couldn't see her little girl anymore for a, a short season, and we had to do all of her visits on Zoom. And I remember one time she showed up on the Zoom call, and she was just sh- so shot and disheveled, and like her eyes were sunken in her face, and it honestly seemed like she, she was subhuman as she looked at me, through the camera, And so I went in the bedroom and I began to talk to her. And I said, what is going on? And she just said, Ryan, I can't do it anymore. I can't be her mom. I can't be there for her. This is too hard. And immediately, I didn't think about it. The spirit filled me. And I just began to proclaim truth over her life. I said, you are her mom. And there's no one in the world who has been called to care for her like you have. And you are going through a hard time. But this little girl needs you. You're having a hard time. She's having a hard time. And so God has called you to do this visit so that you can smile at your daughter and she can be reminded that her mommy loves her. And she just began to weep. I mean, just like tears pouring from her eyes. And after several minutes, she wiped her eyes and she looked at me and she said, okay, Ryan, take me to go see my daughter. And that is what we have been called to do, church. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, and we speak truth, and we speak life, and we speak love, even when we take hit after hit after hit. We are God's ambassadors. We are the people God chose to use to reconcile the world to himself and to set things right here on earth as it is in heaven. The last story I'm going to share is of my foster son, and we had him for about four months. And we were placed with him and another uh, foster child at the time. And that was now my daughter, we got to adopt her, her name was Nora Grace. And so we had both these placements at the same time. And it just so happened, that on the same exact day, we reunified my foster son with his mom. And I adopted my daughter into the family. Talk about a complex emotional day. (laughs) And so we had planned this huge party for her at our church with like bounce houses and this huge meal. We were just going to have this celebration of Nora entering our family. And my wife had the idea, why don't we celebrate our foster son's mom for reunifying at the same time? And so that totally changed the tone of the party. And so now it wasn't just an adoption party. It was a celebration of my son being reunified and my daughter entering my family. And so at one point, I had her stand up in front of my community of 120 people. And I, and I just began to admonish her. And, and my wife and I just told her how proud we were of her and how she had worked so hard to get her son back. We just spoke life over her. And without prompting, all 120 of my friends stood to their feet and gave this woman a standing ovation. and she fell to her knees. Because she told me afterwards she had never been affirmed like that in her entire life. And the pain and the lies that she believed and were spoken over her, she felt like in that moment they were broken. That in that moment she believed that she deserved to parent her son. In that moment she believed that she had value That is the church at her finest. When she is willing to speak life and truth and hope over a world that is desperate to be reconciled to Christ. Would you pray with me, Lord? Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you, God, that you are making us new. Thank you, God, that you make your appeal for reconciliation through us. What an honor. What an absolute privilege to serve the king. To be called up to the royal court. To be appointed. To be set apart as an ambassador for the king. A king who is advancing. A king who is restoring. A king who is making all things new. A king who gives out second chances liberally. A king whose grace covers a multitude of our sins. Lord, would you forgive us for not stepping into our identity as ambassadors the way that we should. Lord, we repent that we have failed to live out our vocation at times. But Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for a mercy that's new every morning and a call that asks us to take on that privilege of representing the God of all creation to a broken world in desperately need, desperate need of good news. So Father, would you do something in us Would you create an out-of-our-mind type of love so that whether it's in foster care or something else, God, the way that we serve, the way that we love people, the world looks on at us and says, you are crazy. If you're willing to do that, your God must be something really special. So we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.